Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. another family Sunday for us, uh, the 27th of December, so no elementary ministry this morning. So kids, we're so glad you're here with us today. We are thrilled that you are here with us. If you got your activity bag, um, I'm glad you have that. If if you need one, parents, for your kids, it's a way for them to follow along with the sermon and um, draw and doodle. Uh, There's some out in the hallway. Feel free to go get that. It doesn't distract me to do that. I will say this to you, even though you don't believe me, it doesn't matter to any of you, but your kids are more distracting to you than they are to me. Um, and to anyone else in here. So um, we know kids are here. We love that kids are here. Kids are here because our church is growing. If our church was dying, um, there'd be people my age and older and no kids here. So we're thrilled that kids are in here with us this morning. So um, if you can, you can rest a little bit in that um, this morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter three. We're gonna finish up our Advent series uh, this morning. We've studied the first Advent, Advent, a Latin word meaning arrival or coming, and we've studied that uh, at Christmas. We've looked at all of that. Uh, But historically, uh, the church calendar tradition of Advent is meant to point us towards the second Advent, the second coming of Jesus. And this is where it gets weird, isn't it? Like, this is where it gets weird for all of us. This is where uh, movies are made and uh, dreams or nightmares happen. This is where people, uh, pastors are afraid to teach through certain passages of scripture. It's weird, like, we'll believe that the God of the universe was born as a baby, but we have a really hard time believing that he's gonna come back again. It's so weird, uh, but it's been so distorted and taken out of context for us. Uh, Particularly if you grew up in the flannel graph era of children's church, you really have some weird uh, ideas of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. I remember I had a couple dreams growing up about Jesus coming back. Uh, Our church had this big grass like field behind it. We would play football and ultimate frisbee and we would do our our Awana games back there. And I had this weird, really weird, vivid dream that there was also a a Ninja Turtle sewer cover um, in that field. And that at one point I was in heaven, but heaven was that field. And then God took up the um, sewer cover and I looked down and I saw hell down there. And then um, they were all trying to invite me down there. That's just, it was a weird dream that I had. I um, got nervous to play football out there again because I didn't know if I would fall. I'd just fall into the sewer and there I would be. Um, had a lot of weird dreams like that. I don't know if you have uh, similar accounts or stories of that. We're gonna study this morning uh, from Second Peter. And Peter, uh, we know Peter from walking on water, Peter chopping off ears, uh, Peter denying Jesus, that type of stuff from from Peter. Uh, You are the rock on whom I'll build my church. We know Peter in that way. At this point, Peter's at the end of his life, and he is, I mean, he's he's going out quickly. It's been uh, told to him that he will be martyred. He will be murdered for following Jesus, uh, which is a far cry from denying knowing Jesus to a 13-year-old girl. Now he's going to actually die for his faith, but he's He's older, he's been helping to lead the church at Jerusalem, and so he's written two letters. This one is smaller than 1 Peter. It didn't quite get as circulated quite as much, uh, but it's very profound, it's thick and heavy. I just wanna study the last five verses of 2 Peter chapter three this morning. But Peter refers to what's called the day of the Lord, or the day of God, it's what he refers to. It's an old Jewish idea about um, when God shows up to make things right. This is what's called the day of the Lord. Uh, New Testament is speaking of the day of the Lord when he returns, according to Revelation chapter 19, as a mighty warrior on a white horse. Uh, 
Revelation tells us he has a sword in his mouth. He has a name. He won't tell you what it is, but he also has tattoos on his thighs. What you think a sweet little Mary must have been really disappointed when she found out her son turned into that, right? Like, he's a sweet baby, and now he's the lead singer of Kiss, and I don't know what happened. Where did I go wrong? Um, so those of you whose kids are getting tattoos, just know this might also be their future. Um, but just referring to the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back, he returns from heaven. Again, there's been a whole realm. You go um, on any Amazon search or uh, bookstore search, you're gonna see a whole realm of this kind of uh, end times eschatology kind of stuff taken all out of context. Um, some of it's so creative. Some of it, even the language in Revelation makes it really hard to interpret what's actually happening. Uh, so I'm going to stick to 2 Peter this morning because I only have this one Sunday. We'll get to Revelation eventually. But um, 2 Peter is going to speak of the day of the Lord. So let me give you some history about the day of the Lord and where this comes from. Um, we're going to go back to Genesis. So in Genesis, God creates the world. Everything is as it should be. He creates a garden of paradise. It's perfect. In the middle of the garden, he places the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he tells Adam and Eve, uh, the first man and woman, you can have anything you want in this garden. Everything is perfect. Just don't eat from this tree. And so they, begin, they get deceived by the enemy who shows up like a talking snake and deceives them. And he deceives them generally with this idea. He tempts them with believing that God is not for them, that God is holding out on them. That if God loved you, why would he withhold this? It's not that you're gonna die. He just doesn't want you to be like him. That's the issue. So in their humanity, like us, um, they find themselves falling victim to this lie. Because like Adam and Eve, we would rather be like God than to be with God. We would rather be God than to be with him. That's what we would rather be. We'd rather have the authority and the power to determine good and evil than to be told what good and evil are. So from the beginning of time, this very sin, this first sin is what has plagued humanity. Our desire to take the throne of God from him and seat ourselves there instead, which is a far cry from Philippians chapter two, in which Jesus did not, give, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he gave up the authority, gave up that throne and humbled himself to become a servant, which is why Paul says we should have that same mind in us because the mind that is in us naturally is that we kick Jesus off the throne and we take it instead. It's all the way back from Genesis uh, chapter three, from the first book of the Bible. So that would be the initial sin. And then from there, so once, once we feel like we can determine right and wrong and we're separated from God, then we're gonna fight for our version of right. We're gonna fight for our right and make everybody else evil. We are good, they are evil. So you'll notice, um, whatever your interpretation or the way that you've written good and evil, the good that you've created always benefits you, doesn't it? It always makes you better, makes you the good person, you're the hero, you're the one doing it right, and evil is everybody else. Uh, we see this politically, we see this um, academically, we see this financially. There's all these ways in which we've decided we're gonna determine what is good and what is evil. We would rather be God than to just be with God. So it happens in the garden, uh, they're kicked out of the garden. Adam and Eve give birth to Cain and Abel. 
Cain and Abel fight over who is right, which offering is right, which way of worship is right. I'm just glad that doesn't happen anymore. We don't argue about worship anymore. It only happened back in Genesis. That's a lie. We argue all the time. Uh, so Cain and Abel, then we have murder, and then that continues through Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 11, we find the Tower of Babel. So here's where something significant switches for us. People have wandered, and then they've started to decide they know better. They know what is good and evil. And they've realized if we work together to create a definition of good and evil, we can have a culture that we want to have. And so they build a tower to heaven, literally saying, we are coming for your throne. We want, what to be, uh, we want to be king. We want to decide what is right and wrong, what is evil. And so they fight and they build the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 in order to reach heaven. Um, God, in his grace, realizes, hey, if people are in charge, if people become sovereign, this world is going to be worse than I ever anticipated it being. And so he confuses their language and scatters them around the face of the earth. But Babel, in Genesis chapter 11, would later become what we know as Babylon. Uh, Babylon uh, would be a country that would rise to power. They would fight for authority. They would wield the only weapon that darkness has, and that is death. And they would threaten death. They would kill people who were against their way of thinking, against their versions of good and evil. But to kill them was actually good. It wasn't evil because they decided what good and evil actually was. And so we find Babylon. Throughout Scripture, <clears throat> Babylon is a place, but throughout the Old Testament, um, Jewish readers, even today, would tell you that Babylon is more than just a place. It's an icon. It's an idea. Babylon represents our corporate desire as humanity to define or redefine good and evil, to take authority from God. That's what Babylon represents. So Babylon as a place uh, would conquer the people of God over and over again. But then we'd find Egypt. Um, Egypt is another place to a Jew that would refer back to a form of Babylon. Egypt is just a bigger and badder, more violent Babylon. And God's people find themselves in captivity in Egypt. So God sends Charlton Heston, and he sets, them, sets his people free from slavery in Egypt, and they wander, they get through the Red Sea, they uh, throw a party, they sing songs. And throughout their wandering in the wilderness, they would establish what's called the Feast of Passover to represent the 10th plague when the angel of death passed over the door frames of the homes that had the blood of the lamb on it. And they would celebrate this feast. And then they would get into the promised land, Canaan, God's land that he had designed specifically for his chosen people. And they would sit on the edge of the promised land, on the edge of the Jordan that separated the promised land from the wilderness. And Moses would tell the law again to the people of Israel, as if to say, when you get in here, you're gonna taste success for the first time, you're gonna taste the Lord's favor for the first time, and the temptation is to believe that you had something to do with it. And so they would memorize and they would recite what's called the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six. It's the prayer, and it means, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And it would continue to say that he is the Lord your God who set you free from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus, when they're given the Ten Commandments, God gives his identity first. I am the Lord your God who set you free from slavery in Egypt, and then he gives the commandments. They get into uh, Canaan, into the promised land, and like humanity does, they drift back into the old ways of Babylon. They drift back into the ways of Egypt because you can take the man out of Egypt, but it's hard to get the Egypt out of the man. 
So even in Canaan, uh, now the people of God are more concerned about their nation than their relationship with God. And so they say, God, we want a king. Give us a king. Uh, God um, has done all that. God keeps giving kings. God keeps giving kings and kings and kings. And, and they rise to power. They fall. They get disappointed. But they're asking God now. God is no longer the one who set them free from slavery in Egypt. Now he is the one who is going to give them favor. Give us more. Give us more. Rescue us from our enemies. Give us more. Give us more. And even as they're celebrating Passover, they would call Passover, they would refer back to Passover as the day of the Lord or that day. So the day of the Lord represents whenever God rescues his people is called the day of the Lord or that day in a lot of Jewish literature. But in Canaan, what happens is the oppressed, the people of God, the Israelites have now become the oppressors. They've given their allegiance no longer to God who rescues, but a vending machine God who if they put in the right amount of coins and, and lamb, then they get something back from God. And they've begun to, to begin to stop worshiping God and begin worshiping themselves even through their festivals. Babylon has gotten into the hearts even of God's people. So what was the day of the Lord, right, to remove evil, to set God's people free from slavery is now coming. Let's look at um, Amos chapter five. You can turn there, it'll be on the, on the screen as well. Amos is a prophet out in the wilderness. He's a farmer that God calls to be a prophet. And he says this, this is God speaking through Amos in verse, chapter five, verse 21. I hate, God says to the people of Israel, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God has gotten to the point with his people where they have become uh, the oppressors. They've become Babylon. They've become Egypt. And they are just paying him lip service. Their worship has become preferential. Their worship has become more about performance. Their worship has become more about what it looks like than the guts of it, what it actually means. And God says, you might as well just stop. I'm tired of your songs. I'm tired of your fake feasts. I'm tired of you pretending to love me. You don't love me. You love what I give to you. And I'm done. And then the day of the Lord comes upon his people because now they are the ones holding themselves captive. They are Babylon. They are Egypt. Amos 6, verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor, I hate. It is disgusting to me, the pride of Jacob. Um, Jacob, one of Joseph's sons, Jacob would later um, change his, God would change his name to Israel and he would um, be one of the, the rulers and lead one of those tribes. This is an insult where God no longer calls them Israel. He's calling them back to their human name of Jacob. It says, I hate his pride. I hate the pride of my people. I hate his strongholds. 
and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. The day of the Lord is now coming upon his people. Because they are sinners? Well, they've always been sinners. What's changed? Well, they've become the oppressor. They are fake in their worship. They don't love God. They don't know God. They've stopped remembering him as the God who set them free from slavery in Egypt. Let me pause here real quickly and say this to us. We are all, as followers of Jesus, we are in danger of this very thing. Um, We pretend a lot and we fake a lot. We fake our worship. Um, We use God. Instead of getting to know him, we use him for what we want. He's no longer for us our rescuer or our deliverer. Uh, Now he's our vending machine. God abhors the pride of Jacob. It's turned into pride. The very thing Moses said, when you get in there, don't think you had anything to do with it. So God does. He delivers them up. Even though they had been set free from Egypt and Babylon, Babylon has now made its way into their hearts as well all the way back from Genesis chapter three. This is the same sin. They want the authority. They want the power. They want to redefine good and evil. They've taken authority from God. And so now the day of the Lord has come upon them. So God delivers them. Assyria comes, the other countries after that, and after that, and after that. And then we go for generations throughout the Old Testament. Malachi gives his final prophecy, and then for 400 years, we don't hear anything from prophets. We don't hear anything from anybody um, new from God, nothing about, from God to his people. And in the meantime, there's a new oppressor, a new authority taking over, and it is Rome. And so when Jesus is born, Rome is just another version of Assyria, who's another version of Babylon, who's another version of Egypt. That's, this is all it is. It's all, it's all the same thing. And so it's why the people of God were desperate for a ruler, a king, a warrior, a political champion to show up to fix what was wrong because what they thought was wrong was Rome. But God knew better. Rome wasn't the problem. Babylon wasn't the problem. Egypt wasn't the problem. Assyria wasn't the problem. It was the pride of Jacob. It was the same sin from Genesis chapter three. The people of God would rather be God than be with God. And so he sends Jesus as a baby. He sends Jesus, who gave equality with God and submitted himself to become a servant, as if to say the only way to defeat the pride of Jacob, the only way to defeat the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three is to come back as a baby. And so he does, Jesus um, grows, he gets lost at the temple, Um, he later grows, he turns water into wine. But in Matthew chapter four, Jesus is tempted by by the enemy, right? This should take us back to Genesis chapter three. And the enemy only has one trick up its sleeve, and that's to twist the words of God and to tempt all of us with power. And so he tells Jesus on a few different occasions, hey, if you do this, I'm gonna give you all the power I have in this world. Adam and Eve fell to it. Moses fell to it. David fell to it. But Jesus is a better Moses. He is a better David. And Jesus says, I don't want your power. I've got better power than that. And I came to overthrow not a nation, not a country. I came to overthrow you. You are done for. So Jesus lives his life and he submits his soul to death 
the one weapon that the enemy has is death. And he wields it and he holds it over us and he threatens us with it and he scares us with it. And Jesus says, bring it to me. Give me death. Give it all. And so Jesus takes on all that evil had to offer in sin and in death, and he bears it in his body. And then he raises from the dead as if to say, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Because the power you try with Adam and Eve and with Moses and Abraham and David, it doesn't work on me. And better than that, the only thing you have to scare me into submission, I have now defeated. So now we, you and I, we can be set free from the sin of Babylon from the pride of Jacob. But we live in the already and the not yet, don't we? So while Jesus came as a baby to begin that process and overthrow the sin of Babylon, there's a day of the Lord coming in which once and for all, he will overthrow all evil. And Peter is telling us in 2 Peter that when he does so, he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be better than that. There will be no evil. There'll be no weeping and tears. There will only be joy and worship. But in the meantime, Babylon still exists in our hearts. So let's be honest about it. We, like Adam and Eve, still desire authority. We still want control, we still want power, we still want to define what is good and evil. But Jesus is coming to make all things right. So here's what I want to say to us as a church today, and what Peter is saying to the church in Jerusalem. When he comes, when he comes, uh, let's be found worthy. When he comes, let him catch us singing. Let him catch us worshiping. When he comes, may we be ready. But like uh, the people of Israel in the Old Testament and like the Jerusalem church in the New Testament, the longer God takes, uh, the less strong we get in our waiting. And so we're tempted uh, to fall back into the sins of Babylon. But the day of the Lord is coming and he detests Babylon. He detests those who would take authority and power from him. And he's coming. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, Peter has told the church at Jerusalem he's coming. And he has said, hey, um, a lot of people are telling you he's taking too long. He must not have actually meant it. And Peter is saying, listen, he is taking a long time. But that's good news for you. Because the longer he takes, the more chance you have to know Jesus. He is tarrying because it's his grace. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the these he's referring to is from verses 12 and 13, the new heaven and the new earth. When he does away with the old heavens and the old earth, since we're waiting for this, be diligent, be a hard worker, be focused, be persistent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, spot or blemish for me takes me back to this. This was my idea. This is what I, I think I had been taught, but maybe had just distorted for me in my own like, makeup and personality. I was so afraid of going to heaven and Jesus coming back because here's what I thought. I don't know if I was taught this or I built this in my own imagination, that I would be waiting in front of the pearly gates and St. Peter would be there telling jokes to anybody who cared and he'd be telling jokes about him and 
whatever. And so I get up to my time on the line and he would say, Jeremy, I'm glad you're here. If you would just turn your attention to this jumbo, this jumbotron and I will reveal to you, I'm gonna play the reel of your entire life. All the things you thought you were doing when nobody was looking, we're all gonna watch together. And so my life would flash before everybody's eyes who's waiting in line. Everybody would see my sins. Everybody would see what had been revealed to me. And I, I didn't want that. So I don't want Jesus to come back. I don't want that to be um, revealed. This idea of spot and blemish too would carry the idea for many of us that, hey, you don't wanna be caught doing that when Jesus returns, do you? Youth pastors would say, you don't wanna be caught making out with your girlfriend when Jesus returns. And that's just another way to modify our behavior and to scare us into submission. But that's not what this passage is teaching. Spot and blemish here in verse 14 refers back to 2 Peter chapter two. And Peter refers to false teachers and false prophets as a spot and blemish on the word of God. The ones who had drifted away from the truth about God and now we're distorting things. What Peter is saying is, hey, don't, don't fall into false teaching don't let your mind be deceived as a spot or a blemish. This, verse 14, is about the Babylon that's in each and every one of us to wrestle authority and power back from God. And Peter is saying, don't fall into it. As you wait, he's taking a long time, and you're gonna be tempted. Stand firm. He continues in verse 15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Yeah, he's taking a long time. What a gift to you just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So now he's referring to the apostle Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament. <clears throat> Verse 16, as Paul does in all his letters in which he speaks of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which is the understatement of the year, isn't it? Oh, you think so, Peter? You think that's hard to understand? Anyone here agree with that statement? You can raise your hand. Is the Bible hard to understand? It's, you're allowed to say it. Jesus isn't mad. It's true. It's super hard, especially Paul. He uses words that no one, act, he makes them up. He literally makes up words like, I don't know what that means. Well, Paul doesn't know what it means either. It just sounded cool, and so he wrote it. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And then, so here's what's key, though. So here's what people do. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do to other scriptures. You know what we do with things that are hard to understand? We try to make up what they mean. And Peter is saying, hey, don't fall into false teaching. I know there's scripture that's hard to understand, particularly about the end times. I get that. So don't twist it. If you don't understand it, just say you don't understand it. If you don't know what a mark of the beast is, just say you don't know what the mark of the beast is. But they twist it to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Verse 17, you therefore... These are Paul's final words, or Peter's final words before um, he would face death. You, therefore, you church, you Christians, beloved, knowing this beforehand. Well, knowing what? Because you know that things are hard to understand and false teachers will twist it. Because you know that God is gonna take a while and you're gonna lose your patience. And because you know there is false teaching, church, do you know there's false teaching? There's false teaching. There's false teaching on podcasts and in books and in churches, on platforms and stages, at conferences, in letters. There's false teaching. And we should know this beforehand. It's not a surprise to us that people would twist the words of God. They will. 
So knowing this beforehand, Peter says, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So here, as we wait for the Lord to return, as we wait for the day of the Lord, may we not be found as oppressors. May we not be found in the sin of Babylon. May we not be found trying to wrangle authority from God himself. And so he says, as you wait, be careful that you are not carried away. We're all in danger of being carried away. Our steadfastness, our stability, the longer God takes, the more prone we are to wander. Now, that applies to us as we wait for the return of Jesus. We're practically speaking every day. Isn't this true for us? When it feels like God isn't coming through on our promise, when he's not um, working restoration the way as quickly as we want him to in our marriage, with our kids, with our finances, when it seems like God is tarrying, to take the King James word, when it seems like he is waiting, when it seems like he's not working, aren't we tempted to wrestle authority from God and say, you're not doing it fast enough, let me do it. I've done it in my marriage. I've done it with my kids. I've done it with finances. It's fine. If this is how you're going to be, at least I know how to get me through today. And Peter's saying, be careful, church. You know there's false teaching. You know you're prone to Babylon. Be steadfast. There's Babylon in each and every one of us. As we wait for the Lord, for us culturally right now, as we wait for God, we are prone to wander away from biblically-centered, gospel-centered preaching and fall into false teaching that just tickles our ears and makes us feel good and promises a healthy marriage in five easy steps. And Peter is saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Because he is coming. And when he comes, don't let Babylon rule your heart. We're gonna get carried away. So then what do we do? Verse 18, instead, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is gonna be frustrating to a lot of us today, particularly in our culture and what we desire. Paul doesn't say, hey, he's gonna take a long time. So do these three things to lose weight. He's gonna take a long time to get here. Um, so do these five things to make sure your marriage is safe. He doesn't say, hey, God's gonna take a long time to get here, so make sure you do Financial Peace University. Mm -mm. What does he say? It's, he's coming, it's gonna be a while. There's false teaching. Remain steadfast by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you grew up in church, do you remember how many times in Sunday school or children's church uh, your teacher would ask you a question and you would raise your hand to be hilarious and say, uh, Jesus? And they would say, um, uh, how, do you, how do you fix sin? Uh, Jesus. Who rose from the dead? Jesus. Um, what color is the sky? Jesus. <laughs> remember that? This is Peter's version of not even telling a joke. You know what the answer is? Jesus. Do you know what you need in your marriage? Jesus. You know what you need when you parent your children? Jesus. Do you know what you need at college? Jesus. You know what you need in calculus? Jesus. Probably more than anything else, you need Jesus in your calculus. You need Jesus at your workplace. What You need Jesus. And this frustrates us because we say, but what do I do with that? What, what do I do? Yeah, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Great, but what, what do I do? Does it help me? Does it not help you? The only way to remain steadfast in our waiting, to not be carried away by Babylon, is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, or Peter is saying, 
Don't lose your stability instead, but keep your footing by growing. So that word grow, it's in the tense, the present imperative tense, which means it keeps on going. We keep on growing. For some of us this morning, here's what you need to hear. You aren't there yet. You aren't the expert. You aren't the authority. You're not in charge. You don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. I don't care what podcast you've listened to and what seminary you went to and who your pastor was. We, you don't know. I don't know. Billy Graham didn't know. Well, how do, we, how do we keep from falling into Babylon? Well, we have to keep growing. We gotta keep growing. So that means for us, we have to admit first and foremost, we are not there yet. I don't know everything. How do you keep Babylon out of your hearts? Humility. Humility. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What a gift it would be for you to answer that to somebody. Just say, I don't know. Let's find out together. I don't know. Why did the dinosaurs die? I don't know. We have to have humility if we're gonna grow. If we're gonna be stable, we have to have humility. Why? Because the pride of Jacob, God detests. Humility, we're all growing. We're, none of us are there yet. We have this drift towards the sin of Adam and Eve, which is to redefine good and evil, and then we gotta fight for our version of it. So we're gonna fight for rightness, which then makes us arrogant, judgmental, and blaming and accusatory people. Like, have you been paying attention in 2020? Have you found yourself this way? Well, I'm right about this. No, this, this, is the, this is the good way to handle this situation. If you love Jesus, you will do this or wear this. If you, this is what we're saying. We're prone to this. We all drift towards the sin of Babylon. But here's the beauty of this passage and the entirety of scripture. You can just admit where you are. I don't know. You don't know. Quit making stuff up. You don't know. We don't know. We grow. You can admit where you are. We never arrive. Uh, churches are historically bad about making people feel like you can't admit that you don't know something. I, I faked it for most of my life. I don't like um, not knowing something. Here at this church, you can admit it. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how that works. I don't know how uh, the grace of God and the wrath of God work together. I'm not real sure yet. I don't know. Okay, so then what do we grow in? If we're all gonna keep growing, what are we growing in? Are we growing in our behavior, in our discipline? Are we, do we need to know more about apologetics? Do we need to um, study different languages? Do we need to study different cultures? What are we growing in? Well, we're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're growing in. So the first word is grace, the grace of Jesus. How fluent are you in the grace of Jesus? I mean, I know you know the Ten Commandments, and I know you know the Second Amendment, which is not, not in the Bible, but I know you know it. I know you know the First Amendment. I know you know what rights we have. I know we know the Declaration of Independence. I, but like, how fluent are you in this, in the grace of Jesus? Primarily, how fluent are you in his grace towards you? Like, how quickly can you speak it to yourself? How fluent are you in the grace of Jesus towards you in your sin? While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. How fluent are you in that? In his grace towards you. And then how fluent are you in his grace towards other people? Does it roll off your tongue? If you're like me, it doesn't. Accusation does. 
Blame does. Pride does. I have to grow in my grace, in the grace of the Lord Jesus towards other people. How fluent are you in his grace? Can, is there room for you to grow in, in that? A stagnant understanding of God's grace will leave us vulnerable to the pride of Babylon. Secondly, we need to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. Uh, this word knowledge, I want it to mean something else, but it doesn't. It literally just means like knowledge, like knowing something. It can even be facts. Not necessarily transformative, but just that we know something. And here's what's sad for us um, in church today, in Christianity today. We have wandered away from just teaching. We've begun this weird uh, thing that's kind of seeped its way into some churches that like um, memorizing scripture is legalistic or it's old school or no, it's not as biblical. Hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. That's not because um, some fundamental Baptist church said to do it. It's because Jesus said to do it. Knowledge. We have to grow in our knowledge. Many of us are living lives based on some theoretical idea of Jesus. We're taking stances based on something we've made up, something somebody told us about Jesus, and we're living our lives. We've based our lives upon falsehood. If I came to you and said, hey, have you, um, I, just, I just love my wife, I love her. I love her jet black hair and her really deep brown eyes. And you would say, that's great, except for your wife has like reddish blonde hair and green, blue eyes. I can't say that I love someone but not know anything about them. Many of us are saying, well, I love Jesus and he loves me. What do you know about him? What do you know? What do we know? Can we grow in our knowledge of Jesus? This is gonna require us sitting under teaching and preaching and in small group and then personally studying God's word. It's not sexy. It's not five easy steps. It is a disciplined approach to I need to be steadfast so I want to know Jesus. Well, then we sit under teaching and preaching and we study God's word. What do we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of who? Our Lord and Savior. Uh, we love the idea of Jesus as Savior. We're not so keen on having a Lord. The word for Lord means a master or an authority. And I love that Jesus saves me as long as he lets me determine what I wanna do with my life. Mm. Jesus decides he is the Lord. And what's great about that is that he loves you but he's the Lord. He determines good and evil. You don't get to, I don't get to, America doesn't get to, our culture doesn't get to, Democrats don't get to, Republicans don't get to. Jesus is Lord. That is the declaration of a Christian. Jesus is Lord. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Jesus saved us. He is our Savior. You can't save yourself, I can't save myself, and we cannot save anyone else. Wives, you cannot save your husband. You can't even teach him to put the seat down, and you think you're going to save him from his sins. You can't save him. Only Jesus can. Husbands, you can't fix every problem. You can't save your spouse, and no one else can save us. Meredith makes an amazing wife and an awful savior. My kids are a lot of fun and they are great kids, but they will never save me. 
Only Jesus can. Your spouse can't, your kids can't, your boyfriend or girlfriend can't, your pastor can't, a president can't, a podcast can't, a diet or a workout program, a new year will not save you. We need to devote ourselves to growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's it. He is it. So some of us today are saying, yeah, okay, so, but like, no, but what do I do? What, what do I, I get that, but like, what do I, what do I, what do I do? Listen, this isn't a quick fix. This isn't gonna solve all of your problems tonight. But as we grow, we find stability. And what's happened in our churches is that we have become such a people who teach and lean into application that we don't even know who Jesus is. We don't know. And it has served us poorly in a year like 2020. Because when tragedy hits and disaster hits, when all hell breaks loose in your home, it doesn't matter how many steps it takes to financial freedom if you don't know Jesus. If you don't know just the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. This is what um, Peter is telling us. He's coming back. You're gonna be prone to wander. You're gonna be prone to take authority. Don't. Don't humble yourself and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he finishes this book. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You wanna grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ? Start here. Give him glory. Give him weight, give him significance, give him authority in your heart and in your home, in your workplace, in your car, in what you listen to and in what you read. He has the authority. There's Babylon in each and every one of us. As he returns, may we be found worshiping him. You bow your heads and close your eyes. Wrap us up, give us a second just to think and ponder. The day of the Lord is coming, and that's not a threat. For those of us who name Jesus as Lord, that's a promise and a reason to rejoice. So are you ready? Some of us this morning, um, we're not following Jesus at all. We've never given our life to Jesus. Uh, we like our authority. We're not gonna give it up. We, uh, we've, we've tried to lead our own lives and live our own lives and fight for our own lives and it's left us exhausted and broken. And this morning, you need to set yourself free from the captivity of Babylon and be rescued by the Lord your God. Is there anyone this morning who would say, I need to give my life to Jesus for the first time. I, I am enslaved. I'm, slavery, I'm enslaved to my sin. I'm enslaved to Babylon. I have one in power and I can't do it anymore. I need someone to lead me and love me. Is there anybody this morning who wants to follow Jesus for the first time? And there are some of us in the room this morning who at the dawn of a new year, we need to lay Babylon aside and be rescued in our own hearts. Uh, the longer this year has gone, the longer Jesus has waited to return, we have fallen back into old habits. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you to um, be humble in that endeavor, 
to be patient because it takes time. And to be faithful and present as you journey. We're gonna do this together. We all need more Jesus. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that even though it frustrates me sometimes that the efficient part of me wants it to be done quickly, that you take your time. And like any good meal, often the longer it takes, the better it tastes. So give us steadfastness as the sin of Babylon attacks us and we long for the day of the Lord. Root us. Uh, in the growing uh, pursuit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be more fluent in his grace and more fluent in our knowledge of him, even today. May we not grow weary. Help us not to lose heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So we say goodbye to 2020 and look forward to what God will do in 2021. As you go, church, may you be um, full of the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We be a people who admit that we're not there yet, but we're trying. And may we be growing together in grace upon grace. Uh, may grace be with you as you go. We love you. You are dismissed.